Well, good morning. If you would, open up to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles. We will be there this morning. Titled, uh, The Suffering Servant, taken from the broader context of Isaiah uh, 53, going back before that as well. We'll be a little bit before and a little after as well, with the main section being in verse 4 through 6. I'll read that with you first, and then uh, I'll pray one more time and work through it. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we uh, thank you for your word. And now again, ask for your power that, Lord, the preaching of your word would be indeed as though your very oracles. And that, Lord, you would grant clarity um, and great conviction about uh, the gospel, about your glory. Lord, ask for your great help in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We have a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible at my house that we have used before. Some of you may have it by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It's good, um, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it says this as the subtitle or the description somewhere that, quote, every story whispers his name. That's the overarching description of the book, meaning that ultimately... Um, And rightly, everything in the Old Testament is foreshadowing and pointing to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Every story whispers his name. It's there. And you have to look hard sometimes, perhaps. You have to understand and think. Um, If every story in the Old Testament whispers his name, undoubtedly, I think Isaiah 53 here, as we just read, screams his name. Uh, I think if you were to read... Uh, this section and uh, much more, we'll read some more as well. If you were to read it uh, to most anyone familiar with Christianity, which is basically everyone in our particular culture, um, and if they're, so long as they're not super biblically literate but familiar, they may think that you are reading out of the, one of the Gospels. Um, it has been called by some, in fact, the fifth Gospel, I learned in preparation for this. So gospel it sounds. <laughs> You would imagine if someone were to say, you just thought you ripped a a page right out of the New Testament and you're describing Jesus. Oh yeah, that's about Jesus, someone who doesn't know better would say. Where'd that come from? That come from the Gospel of Matthew? It sure sounds like it. It's astounding. Um, As I was preparing the sermon, um, I have personally been wonderfully confronted uh, with this strange and encouraging reality. I didn't expect this, to be honest, and yet it happened. Isaiah's vision here, as it's described in Isaiah 1 throughout the whole thing, um, in chapter 53 and in 52 as well, was written some 700-odd years before Jesus was born. It was a long time prior to the coming of Jesus. And yet it seems impossible to read this passage 
and not see the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, born 700 years later. It reads like a perfect description of what we understand our Savior to be who he is, what he has done. This is a remarkable thing to see the fruition of God's plans in such detail in the person and life of Jesus. It's truly astonishing as you read through the passage. Perhaps you are become, you have become like I was, I think, overly familiar with the passage to forget how amazing it is, this description in Isaiah 700 years later, uh, earlier. Evangelistically, um, this doesn't bring salvation to a soul merely to see prophecy fulfilled. Merely to see dots connected and, wow, that's incredible. It doesn't bring salvation, um, some kind of intellectual convincing that thereby a soul now loves God when it once hated God. But, and I think this is an important but, seeing God's grand story, his grand plan, come together in Jesus is a means by which God prepares and works salvation in lost souls And encouragement in saints. I hope for that to happen this morning, perhaps both. It certainly has been the case for me. It has been incredibly encouraging to see this reality. The Apostle Paul, for example, I'm not just making this up, he says this in Acts 17 that he, quote, reasoned, or talks about Paul, he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah, to suffer And to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that Christ, is the Messiah. He found it necessary. He reasoned, explaining, and proving that he had to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. This is Jesus, he says. This Messiah, this anointed one, uh, Paul labored to show from the scriptures, was Jesus. But before anyone knew the name Jesus, of course, there is this long history of prophecy about this coming one, especially striking in Isaiah 53. There was a long history of this, this foreshadowing, this story, this waiting. And so the first thing to notice that, again, sometimes I think is so obvious we forget that it's there, the first thing to notice before we get into a bit more structure, is that this whole passage from Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, which is really where the passage starts, to the end of chapter 53, is about someone. That's what's going on. It's about a person. The whole thing centers around this servant, keeps describing him as. This is how uh, Isaiah 52, verse 13 Starts, says, quote, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And he goes on to describe what this servant does that's so wise and so successful. The entire thing is one long description of this servant. Just listen, uh, 53 verse 2, He grew up before him like a young plant, he. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected. Verse 7, he was oppressed. Verse 9, they made his grave, they made his grave with the wicked. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Uh, Verse 12, A, I will divide him a portion with the many. And then finally in verse 12, B, 
yet he bore the sin of many. Over and over and over, those are just a sampling, is this person, this guy, this servant. And an inquisitive child, mostly any child, I think, would ask, who is this guy? It doesn't say in the passage. It says this servant and he over and over is doing all these things. One of my kids would ask, who is he? This is the exact question that you may remember. The Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip in Acts 8. He asked him that. He's riding along, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah's scroll right at this point. Interestingly, he's got it open. He's reading it out loud probably. And Philip overhears him and the Spirit says, go over there and ask. And go, go, go up to him and talk to that guy. And he asked, the eunuch asks Philip after he says hello, quote, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? The prophet's talking about somebody. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Ethiopian eunuch isn't sure. And Philip goes on to tell him, Who? (laughs) He answered it. And so we have this ancient prophecy. It's remarkable. This vision that has a lot to say about this servant, what he did or will do, uh, and what God thinks and feels about all of this. God's reaction, God's uh, affections, his feelings, if you will, are intimately involved in this whole affair. So there's going to be four points I'll work through here. Um, through most of the chapter, centering around this first section that I already read, uh, verses 4 through 6. The first section is called the ransoming substitute, or rather just ransoming substitute, section 1. Ransoming substitute. First and foremost um, in this vision, in this prophecy, is the central hub or truth around which the rest of it turns. The ransoming substitute of this suffering servant. So again, I'm going to read it one more time. 700 years before Jesus, we read this. Quote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. End quote. John Piper says this about this phrase that I thought was very helpful and very straightforward. He says, quote, This is the heart of the gospel of Jesus. You could go many places in the scripture for this sort of thing. There's a heart. There's a center. And it is, as Piper says, substitution. This is the great message of good news that God has for rebel subjects who are willing to lay down their rebellion. He's referring to the end of the passage there. We have gone astray. We have rebelled. Piper continues, Instead of collapsing in grief over our rejection, he bears our griefs. Instead of increasing our sorrows, he carries our sorrows. Instead of avenging our transgressions, as would be right to do, he is pierced for them in our place. Instead of crushing us for our iniquities, our sins, he is crushed for them as our substitute. 
and all the chastisement and whipping that belong to us for our rebellion, he takes on himself in order that we might have peace and be healed. End quote. This suffering servant, in other words, bears the consequences of sin, which is death. This is so because God is good. And being good, he cannot wink at sin. He cannot, like an unrighteous judge, sweeps in under the cosmic rug, as some have said, He can't do that. That would be unrighteous of a judge to do. He cannot dismiss rebels as innocent when they are clearly guilty. This is a problem, in other words. It ought to be a problem in our minds. How could a judge dismiss sin? Mark Dever says this in his uh, commentary. He has a whole chapter overviewing all of Isaiah. He says this, quote, The question... The question that cries out through the whole book of Isaiah is this. How would a holy God forgive and restore the very people he charges with rebellion? That's the question that cries out through the whole book of Isaiah. He argues and shows in his chapter, how could a holy God do that? How could a holy God forgive and restore the very people he charges with Rebellion. Uh, End quote. In other words, just judges don't simply forgive rebel criminals. So how can he do that? The answer is in Isaiah here. The answer is given to us quite clearly. This suffering servant will receive the penalty sinners deserve. And anyone who repents, who gives up their rebellion, will be forgiven and restored. This ransoming substitute, this great central hub of substitution, is what is being sung about. We just sang about it for, I think, every single song. It also happens to be what is being sung about in Revelation. Listen to Revelation. Just one verse out of Revelation 5, verse 9. Revelation 5, 9 says this. And they sang a new song, saying, quote, Worthy are you, they're singing to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, because you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is what they're singing about. They're singing about the worthiness of the Lamb who was slain in order to ransom a people. In other words, this slaughtered lamb is what Isaiah 53 is also about, this ransoming substitute. And it is the doctrine that ends in doxology. It's this truth that ends in song. They're singing this great glorious truth. This ransoming substitute is the main thing that this vision in Isaiah 53 is about because 
It is the main thing all created reality is about. We open up the veil uh, and see reality in its glory. This is what all created reality is ultimately about. The highest of praise, God's great glory in ransoming rebels. That's what they're singing about in Revelation 5. That's what the substitution is about in Isaiah 53. God's great glory in ransoming rebels. Woe to us if we are bored about this. That would be a negative way to put it. Woe to us if we are bored in our souls about the thing that they're singing about and moved to song in heaven. And woe to you if your life is not overarchingly animated by this central truth of the ransoming substitute. And yet, the word to sinners is it's not too late. (laughs) Confess your sins and come to the Savior. This is the offer of the gospel. Our lives are meant to be animated about this central, great, and glorious thing. So this ransoming substitute, this good news, a declaration. This also is what the Apostle Peter, not to overdo it, but the apostles aren't too concerned to overdo it. On Peter's deathbed, essentially, in 2 Peter 1, this is what he wants his readers to recall at any time, that Jesus has cleansed them from their sins. I want you to be able to recall this at any time, he says, so that after my departure you may be able to remember it. Jesus cleansed you from their sin, even though they knew it, even though they were well established, Peter says. He wants them to remember. There is more, of course, to our understanding of the gospel. There's a great deal to be said, but this is the center. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, this is how God shows his love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I wonder, it struck me, very recently, if that for us phrase for you uh, makes sense. I talk to students all the time about this. This is where I often start. If someone jumps in the lake and dies and someone says, they died for you and they have tears in their eyes, right? Isn't that wonderful? They just died for you and they run off the dock and drowned. And all the students always laugh. There's always a big outcry at that. That's hilarious and weird and really quite silly. And yet, very often, I think, it doesn't get much deeper for us in our understanding when we say, Jesus died for you. What does that mean? He died for you. What does that mean? He died for you. I think often the young Christians, the young professing Christians, don't know. It's just a thing we sing about. I don't know. Jesus died for you. He, Christ died for us. Here's what it means. He died for us, for those who repent and put their faith in him. He died for us in such a way as to bear the sin of many. In other words, this is how God can remain good. This is how God can remain just and yet forgive sin. This is the central problem. Justice is carried out. Justice is carried out. God remains good in forgiving sinners. Justice is carried out, just not on the rebel. It's the central thing, but upon the substitute. Justice is carried out upon the substitute. 
this suffering servant. That's how. And then he gives righteousness to those whom he forgives. I recall when I first realized this, and I would call you to the realization that perhaps many don't. Don't miss uh, the evangelistic and indeed I would suggest apologetic power of this truth. Obviously, the first and foremost thing is for your soul. This is for unbelievers' soul to be forgiven their sin, to come to a holy God that loves them. It's for us to remember. And don't miss the power of this central truth in getting into unbelievers' hearts and minds in our culture. Um, There's a great deal about justice in our culture, if you haven't noticed. Social justice and all sorts of justice. Um, It's a big deal, people think. We can point people to our God of justice and mercy. He is just and merciful. Our problem is that he's just, and the good news is that he's merciful. This is the good news, this substituting ransom. Secondly, we are told more than that, verse 4 through 6, though it's the central thing. We're told more than that as we read on about this vision. Second point is an unexpected and unimpressive Messiah. Unexpected and unimpressive Messiah. So this prophecy, though elusive to them, uh, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch was, didn't really know what's this about. People didn't know fully, of course. It was a prophecy. It was foretelling of things that were yet to happen. It was elusive, but it wasn't altogether out of the blue. It wasn't completely left field. Uh, they were thinking about these things. First Peter 1 says this. First Peter 1, verse 10, uh, recounts uh, Israelites' anticipation about the Messiah, about the coming one. It says this, First Peter uh, 1.10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They're really thinking about it. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Messiah, and the subsequent glories. End quote. First Peter 1, 10 and 11. So they, they had been looking and waiting. Right? This wasn't an invention out of the blue in the first century. Ever since God's words, uh, in fact, to the serpent in the garden, the whole creation, Paul teaches us, has been waiting eagerly for something, for someone. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring. He, this offspring of the woman, he shall bruise or crush your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise or crush his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. There's been a planned serpent slayer since the garden. And mankind is to put their hope and trust in God to deliver them from sin and the accuser, the serpent, and death. So this is the story of the world. 
a universal recognition that something is wrong with what therefore was once right. This is a big deal. This is a big deal not to miss. Again, I can't help myself but think of the evangelistic ammunition here. Sinners know something is wrong. I've never once met someone who says, yep, the world is perfect just the way it is. They know something is wrong. We get the sickness wrong. Sinners get the sickness wrong. We don't have the answer right. We get the solution wrong, and yet there's a recognition that something is wrong. So how do we get it wrong? How is the sickness wrong, the problem wrong, the solution wrong? Um, ultimately, it's the same way that the Israelites got it wrong, is, which is accounted throughout the book of Isaiah. Israelites look to man for hope. They look, as we do, we look to man for hope. We look to ourselves to fix what is broken. The answer, fallen mankind reasons, lies somewhere, in other words, within our own strength in some way, shape, or form. The solution lies somewhere within our own strength. And this was the continual error of, uh, of Israel. If you read through the book of Isaiah, which I didn't read through the whole thing, but I read quite a bit of it, um, thanks to Mark Dever, uh, it just chronicles this continual repetition of, of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. They look to Egypt for help in times of need and warfare when they shouldn't. They should have looked to God, chapter 31, verse 1. Israel trusted in Assyria. When that didn't work out, they trusted in Babylon. After that, time and time again, they rebuked for these things. They trusted in the wrong things. They would put their hope in man, in man's strength, rather than God. In summary, it's very, you know, lots of details, but very straightforward. Here's how uh, David Mathis puts this, and this is a lengthy quote that I just couldn't improve on, so I went with it. He will answer the rest of the point, the unimpressive and unexpected Messiah. Here's how he puts this, noting the unexpectedness and the unimpressiveness of this Messiah that isn't the hope of man um, in our sin. David Mathis puts it like this. He says, quote, A banner of astonishment, of unexpectedness, is unfurled in uh, chapter 52, verse 14, and flies over the rest of the passage. It's a banner of astonishment. Verse 14 of chapter 52, as many as were astonished at you. Chapter 52, verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths in amazement. Verse 1 of chapter 53, who has believed what he has heard from us? He asks, because it is so surprising. So seemingly upside down. Chapter, uh, verse 8. Who considered? And he goes on. The whole of the vision foretells of an astonishing, startling, almost unbelievable work that the arm of the Lord will perform. This servant, God's own arm, will have his appearance marred beyond human semblance. And perhaps what's most striking of all is not just that it will happen, but that it is God's doing. This is God himself at work. In other words, the astonishment comes from the story of the servant, and catch this, being an expression not of human wisdom, but divine. 
wisdom. The astonishment comes from the story of the servant being an expression not of human wisdom, but divine wisdom. He chronicles other instances of this. This is the same God who confounds human wisdom by saying, quote, the older shall serve the younger, Genesis 25, 23. The older shall serve the younger. This is the same God who will say through Isaiah in 55, 8, and 9, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. He's talking about um, the coming pardoning of sinners in this passage, by the way. Chapter 55 isn't just he's smarter than us. He's talking about bringing and calling people to return and pardoning sinners. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is the same God who will one day inspire another commentary after these forecasted events that reads, quote, 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God not only does it this way, confounding human wisdom and expectation, but he takes pleasure in it. He delights to astonish. As Jesus says in uh, praise in Matthew 11, 25 and 26, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Literally, it was pleasing before you, your gracious will. And he concludes, So then, what is this unexpected enigma? What is this unexpected enigma? What's so astonishing, startling, unbelievable? Isaiah 52, 2-12 unfolds the astonishing story from the servant's quiet birth and upbringing to his unimpressive appearance to the puzzle of his being rejected and despised to his astounding conduct when treated unjustly. And that, shockingly, all the way to the grave. And finally, climactically, in Isaiah 53, 10-12, most astonishing of all, through death comes delight. God's greatest pleasures through and because of this unjust Horrific death of the righteous, undeserving servant, undeserving of death. End quote. He is an unexpected and humanly unimpressive Messiah, and yet God delights to confound human wisdom, to show his glory that we ought to trust in him. Which brings us to number three, God's pleasures in delighting in this. Number three is divine Delight. Title it Divine Delight. There are multiple angles, multiple ways in which delight is being expressed in this passage. Verse 9 says that, quote, they made his grave with the wicked. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
So he was innocent. His grave was with the wicked. Then Isaiah says in verse 10, just right afterwards, quote, Yet it was the delight of the Lord to crush him. The word for will here uh, in the ESV is the one I'm reading. It means more than we might think, which I (laughs) discovered, I sort of knew, but was enlightened on this. We might think of it as, I'll allow it, he wills it, it's the Lord, it's the will of the Lord, he chooses, check, you know. But it means more than that, it means to delight in something, it means to take pleasure in, which confounds us a little bit, makes it hard at least if you're paying attention. Why would God take pleasure in crushing his innocent servant? Why would God delight in that? Why would God delight in the suffering of his servant? It's a legitimate question, one which I think we also could pose to ourselves and others more often. It's a strange reality. God delighted in the suffering of the servant. He delighted to crush him. If you didn't read more or think more, it sounds sort of awful. (laughs) What? And there is helpful comments beyond this. There's a sense in which, of course, God in some, this is Piper, narrow lens. If you look right at suffering, there's not a, uh, a look of glee on God's face at pain and suffering. This maybe goes without saying, but nevertheless... When you narrow in like that, God's not uh, a a masochist, right? He doesn't enjoy that. And yet Piper argues, I think rightly, when you widen out, you have a a wide lens of reality, there's great delight in the heart of the Lord in crushing his servant. Why? The answer is because God is, as uh, someone has said, happy to save. He is happy to save to save. God's demeanor, to put it mildly, is not begrudgingly uh, saving. He doesn't have his arms crossed with a frustrated look on his face. He got into it again. (sighs) You know, I guess I'll send my son and send the servant. I'll save you, you know. (sighs) Kids always get into trouble, you know. As perhaps Maybe, you know, <laughs> convictedly for us parents in response to our children's sin. God is a happy God. He is happy in the salvation. He is happy in the crushing because God is love. Furthermore, what is happening in the crushing of the servant, the suffering of the servant, is God's delight in the greatest accomplishment of human history. The greatest accomplishment of human history delights the Lord. He delights. Verse 52 again, or uh, sorry, uh, chapter 52, verse 13, beginning of the section, begins with this declaration about what it is. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. That's what's going to happen. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
like the biggest, shiniest trophy. This is the love of God and the glory of God on the highest display rack. His love is so deep and profound, it certainly does go beyond human comprehension or capacity to understand and to fully feel in our current state at least. He delights to crush his servant, his son, for the good of ruined sinners. This is why we sing things like amazing grace. We have to get the sin there in order for the grace to be amazing. Also, God delights in his son's love for God and his glory. God's heart is in delighting in his son's love for God and his glory. The trophy has another name. In other words, this trophy that's being spoken of in verse 13, it's called the servant's love of God's glory. The servant loves the glory of his God. Here's what Piper has to say about this in The Pleasures of God. And this is, uh, this is deep. Track with me here for a minute. I was helped a great deal. Piper says this. John Piper says in The Pleasures of God, quote, The depth of the son's suffering was the measure of his love for the father's glory. It was the father's righteous allegiance to his own name that made recompense for sin necessary. It was, I need to read that again, it was the father's righteous allegiance to his own name that made recompense for sin necessary. So, when the son willfully took the suffering of that recompense on himself, every footfall on the way to Calvary echoed through the universe with this message. The glory of God is of infinite value. The glory of God is of infinite value. Every footfall, Piper argues, end quote, every footfall is saying that. The Son loves the Father's glory so much. He delights. God delights in the Son. He takes great pleasure, probably infinitely beyond our comprehension, in just how much his son loves the Father's glory, that he would do what he did. This is profound, deep waters in the nature of our Lord's redeeming work. Also, it isn't only God, uh, the Father, who delights in the offering for guilt, as verse 10b says. It's not only God, but the suffering servant is also satisfied. He's also delighting, this servant. Verse 10b says this. You can look with me. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in the suffering servant's hand. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The suffering servant, out of his anguish of his soul, shall see, he shall be satisfied. In what? He goes on. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Servant is satisfied in his work. He's also motivated by this great work to make many accounted righteous. This is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 picks up on this theme and says the same thing. Hebrews 12, 2 exalts the same truth about the servant's satisfaction and joy, saying, quote, We look to Jesus, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was it that was before Jesus that made him endure the cross? It was for the joy that was set before him. He accomplished the work that was before him, the cross, despising the shame and brings up the exaltation that chapter 52 of Isaiah 13 is talking about this exaltation. He despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, exalted and lifted up. That was for the joy that he was motivated and now is exalted for his work. And of course, (laughs) I don't mean this to be too uh, off track, but we do, in fact, I think rightly because we're made in God's image, know the joy of stepping back and viewing a job well done. Do we not? Make a thing, you do a thing, and you step back, perhaps literally, and there's satisfaction in the soul, rightly so. The servant does this 10,000 times more joyfully than we ever will. Mission accomplished is the banner. Mission accomplished. Again, the servant, the son, does not have folded arms, dying for us with frustration. This is so important to get. This is the, in the passage. It delighted the Lord to crush him. The servant was satisfied in making many accounted as righteous. This is the demeanor of our God and our suffering, the suffering servant, the Son of God. He delighted. It was satisfied. It was for the joy that set before him. His great love motivated him. This matters when we think on our God. The object of his satisfaction is the fruit of the work. Many accounted as righteous, among other reasons for his joy. Many are as accounted as righteous. Verse 12 says, God will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil or the booty, the reward, with the strong. He will divide him a portion with the many. He's going to share. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. And therefore, he sings over his children in satisfaction. I get that kind of imagery. We'll get there in a moment as well. Singing is an end result anyways. What's happening, you could describe it as perhaps as the result, but he sings over his children in this satisfaction. We read elsewhere, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, Who will save? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. He is satisfied in the work of salvation. Or as the song says, quote, Upon the cross 
of Jesus mine eye at times can see, the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. Two wonders, wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. So this is the product, this is the fruit that the servant produces, that he is satisfied in. He creates worshiping, redeemed sinners that praise him for his wise and accomplished work. And lastly and briefly, resurrection. Final point, resurrection. And here again, my mind, my mind is drawn. This stuck out to me more than it ever had. That resurrection is in Isaiah 53. The word's not. This is quite something. Uh, we see resurrection in this chapter. It's hard to miss. Uh, 52.13 again declares that the servant will succeed. He will act wisely. He will be exalted. Right? It's quite something. But then we read uh, a few verses later in chapter 53, verse 7, that he was led to the slaughter and has his grave with the wicked. He dies. He's cut off from the land of the living, he goes on in 7, and poured out his soul to death. That doesn't sound like success. It doesn't sound like wisdom. It doesn't sound like exaltation. How does then it lead to exaltation? How does that happen? Well, it's right to say it doesn't. Not unless this servant, uh, this suffering servant, lives after death. Death is an enemy after all. There's no exaltation in just being dead. Merely dying does not accomplish enough. He must be raised for our justification, as uh, Paul says. He must be raised. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty two says this: For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, he started it. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And he finishes by saying, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be, to be destroyed is death. End quote of 1 Corinthians 15. And so, we see resurrection in this passage. He must be resurrected. Isaiah 53 prophesies without saying so. And Paul here reminds us again of all the way back to Genesis 3 where death entered the world. And here in Isaiah, we have this glimpse of the suffering servant, this serpent slayer, accomplishing the work God sent him to do. Eventually, he will remove every tear. Death will be no more, and a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells will be established. He does this by coming back from the dead, by accomplishing the work. A kingdom completed. It's begun already. The people of God, the church, you might say, are the dough in which God is growing and expanding his glory. The whole creation groans for resurrection, longing to be set free from the bondage to 
decay. They would have these overtones. They would have this thread in their minds, uh, Israelites paying attention to their prophets. It's all groaning. We are told that when Jesus healed, in other words, or, or for example, we are told that when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, he cast out some demons uh, at the same uh, time, healed many others, that this was in fulfillment of verse 4 of our chapter. He heals her, casts out demons, heals a bunch of other people, and we're told that it was in fulfillment of verse, chapter 53, verse 4, quote, translated just a little differently in Matthew, surely he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Surely he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. These are foreign enemies that are a result of the fall. In other words, this sin-bearing, ransoming substitute, suffering servant, is not merely saving individuals who will then go to heaven when they die, but he is indeed bringing to consummation all things we have in scope, we have in view, in light of the resurrection. He is restoring the broken creation by rising and ruling. The servant's redemptive work is cosmic in scope. And this servant is the first. He saw and was satisfied after death, a trailblazer for what will be the many who trust in him by faith. So I have just two points of uh, brief application, uh, and then we'll wrap up here. First, uh, notice throughout this passage, you could have made a bigger deal out of this perhaps, but notice the us and the many language. Verse 6 of chapter 53, he laid on him the iniquity of us all, us all. Verse 12, he bore the sins of many. This is now fulfilled in the church, the body of Christ on earth. There's an us-ness, there's a people that he is saving. It's not just individual salvation. He's talking about a people. Uh, quote Mark Dever one more time here. He says this, quote, Christianity is centered on Jesus as the Messiah King and servant who personally reintroduces us to God, which is why Christianity is so well modeled in a collection of people, the church. Christianity is best seen in our ongoing interaction with one another, interactions that show the world something about the king and servant himself, how he has loved us and what it means to know him. End quote. This is why Paul can say likewise in 2 Corinthians 6.16, 6, quote, We are the temple of the living God. We, this many and us that Isaiah is referring to over and over. We are the temple of the living God. As God said, he quotes the Old Testament, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So my basic exhortation, um, and it is straightforward, but it is central, is for us to be a gospel people. This passage is about the gospel. It's about the sin-atoning, ransoming substitute of the Savior that God delights in, and we are called to be a gospel and people. Brothers and sisters, First Baptists, if you call this place your church, your people, we must never give up on the gospel for our understanding of one another and life together for God's glory. 
The person and work of Jesus is the only sure hope for real, lasting, and loving covenant, uh, a covenanted community of people that glorifies God. That's our goal. The gospel is central. We must never surrender for this. We must fight the good fight for truth and joy in the Lord, and this is done by being a gospel people, by looking to the Lord. And number two, and very briefly, where the passage and uh, the vision proceeds in uh, chapter 54 is in song. It's not the only thing, but it moves on to say, sing, O barren one. And likewise, the response of a saved soul, both literally, I think, and metaphorically in all ways, is sing. It's sing for joy. The passage goes on, Paul interprets later in Galatians, to instruct the new covenant people. That those who know their suffering servant, their savior, are singing people. They're rejoicing people. So I would encourage to pray if you find yourself, um, like I do sometimes, uh, lacking in the joy, to ask, Lord, as the psalmist says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That we would sing, that the emblem of our faith, that the sign of our faith would be song, which is to say, joy in the Lord for his work. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you and do ask for this just now, even um, perhaps in our great weakness, perhaps, Father, for many of us, we ask that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation and that you would lift up your name in our midst. You would lift up your glory and that we would sing great praises to your holy name. Father, would you help us? Would you glorify your name in our presence? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.